Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 8 of my book, Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. Over the next three episodes, we're going to cover all of chapter 5, entitled, To the Ends of the Earth. So, we're going to take a little break from those three deep season cycles that I covered in chapter 4, the procession, obliquity, and eccentricity, and instead we're going to take a look a little bit more at the human side of how we got to know what we got to know. This is one of my favorite chapters because even though it's a little long, and these next couple episodes are some of the longest I've done yet, I feel like there's a story, especially when you combine them all together on the advancement of understanding of science by humanity and how it's connected to our relationship with the Earth and space around the Earth. One thing that often bothers me about science is how it is usually divorced from how we learned the information. We tend to lob that part off like it's a bad cut of meat and take the information that was collected from some of these really important adventures and we tend to distill it down and deliver it dryly in the classroom as if it is not connected to our growth as a civilization at all. So in the next three episodes... I really want to put a spotlight on how human civilization has advanced through adventure and gathered important scientific information at the cost of people's lives. I'm going to start this episode talking about supernovas that were seen in the sky before anybody knew what a supernova was. And how it must have felt for these people in these isolated locations all around the world to look up and see these things in the sky, because they've been visible to the naked eye at different points throughout history. There must be some sort of visceral feeling that each person has gotten when they look into the sky and they see something that they don't understand. And what I really want to show over these next three episodes is how we've worked as a species to do whatever we could to understand not just the world around us, but the universe around us as well. I was talking to somebody and they mentioned how it must have been sad to look into the sky and see something so beautiful and not know what it was, but I argued that that was actually what drove them to record information and help future people discover what these things were that they saw and 
be able to give an understanding to everybody that came after. This entire chapter is dedicated to many people who explored and even sometimes put their lives on the line to help people that weren't themselves, future people, understand what they could not. And sometimes these people were brilliant. But what they did is they measured and they recorded and they gave what information they knew so that in the future people would understand. While I was doing research for Ultima Thule, I came across a book called Chasing Venus, The Race to Measure the Heavens by Andrea Wolfe. And so I had to order it because it seemed so in line with all of the topics I'm covering in this book. And it turned out to be a more interesting book than I ever would have hoped. I'm going to take a moment here to just gush over what a great author and researcher Andrea Wolfe is. I don't usually take too much time to focus on the sources of all of my material up here in the opening, but a large section of what I'm going to be talking about today comes from the work of Andrea Wolfe and her work in writing Chasing Venus. The entire premise of the book is how a bunch of astronomers in the 18th century got together at the call of Edmund Haley so that they could see the transit of Venus across the sun so they could determine the distance of the Earth from the sun. And so many astronomers put their lives on the line, a sort of job and career that often isn't supposed to come with any danger at all. Wolf's writing is very engaging, and it actually brought me to read most of her books. I am still in the middle of one of them now, but one that's even better that she wrote is about Alexander von Humboldt called The Invention of Nature, and I even use some of that information also in this chapter, so a huge shout out to Andrea Wolf here, and I highly recommend that you read both The Invention of Nature and Chasing Venus by Andrea Wolf because of the quality of writing that she does and the quality of research that she does, and a lot of those stories are just not well known. But I also want to add that I put in a few additional thoughts as well that aren't found in either of her books. For example, there is one astronomer known as Le Gentil who went and studied some Tamil astronomy in India and actually understood a new way of calculating eclipses that is unlike anything we know. And of course, I had to connect it back to the story of Thales, which I covered in chapter two. And there's also an interesting academic back and forth that occurs between Edmund Haley and Le Gentil and Otto Neugebauer, who I've mentioned earlier with his book, The Exact Sciences of Antiquity. So there's a lot of cool stuff that I'm about to share in this chapter. But the main point of this chapter is how many people have put their lives on the line so that we 
Today could know what we know. And today, we too have an obligation to future generations because all of those people in the past had an obligation to us. And there's also a neat little sub-theme I bring out of this chapter as well, and it's about the benefit of open science. And I hope you can see over this chapter, which is over the next few episodes, how open science came to be because it didn't have to be this way. I also talk about what are some of the drawbacks of open science and why some countries stopped embracing it. And it makes me think about where we are in that cycle today in the 21st century, because there are a lot of dangers I can see related to open science by private institutions, governments, and people who are interested in making a profit. Finally, I just want to mention that because I talk about things such as supernovas and I talk about some of these famous astronomers, there's some great paintings done by them, some portraits, and there's also some good maps shared as well within my book that you won't be able to see in a podcast. And so please consider donating if you are enjoying this podcast because then you get a free PDF copy of my book and you have access to all of the pictures and their descriptions, which took quite a bit of time for me to find and write about. Finally, if you want to follow me for updates, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And if you want to reach out to me about anything, you can always email me at no character limit at protonmail.com. Now, let's get to the first two parts of Chapter 5 To the Ends of the Earth. Chapter 5, To the Ends of the Earth Part 1, Frightful Stars It is not just the Earth's motions that make the sky change. The sky changes just fine, all on its own. Just as pole stars are born and die, so too do other stars. And sometimes, humans have witnessed these cosmic changes firsthand, uncertain of what to make of what they were seeing. There was no way for people throughout history who have had the rare opportunity to witness these violent and beautiful deaths of a star to have known what they were seeing. And the 11th century would have been the perfect time to witness the dynamic heavens. Imagine waking up one day and seeing a new star in the sky that wasn't there before. Not just any star. Most people wouldn't have noticed something like that come or go. But waking up to a star so bright that it is brighter than anything else in the sky 
other than the sun and the moon, and that it could even be seen during the daytime. And this new star in the sky isn't a planet either. What past generations once called traveling stars, this star was something entirely new that looked nothing like anything that was up there before. It was just this sort of anomaly that suddenly appeared in the sky all around the world one day in 1006 CE, much to everyone's astonishment. The Chinese recorded it in their meticulous astronomy records as a guest star, watching as this guest was so bright that it produced the same amount of light as a quarter moon, enough to cast shadows during the night and be seen during the day with the sun. Reports of this mysterious object were recorded in Uzbekistan, Yemen, Egypt, and Europe. It was described as having an initial color of green, but as it grew brighter over the course of several days, it became white and regularly threw out sparks all the time, or at least that was according to one observation. Other descriptions from around the world called it glittering and dazzling, and mentioned the sky was shining because of its light. It was clear that this was no ordinary star, because over the course of the next few weeks, months, and years, it began to fade, until it was no longer seen in the sky. About Three years after its appearance, the guest had departed. Today, astronomers can confidently say that the people of 1006 bore witness to a supernova in the sky so bright that it could be seen with the naked eye, a rare event that has only occurred five times over the last millennia. But the Supernova 1006 sighting, or SN1006, is the brightest known in history. A supernova is when a star at the end of its life releases explosive amounts of energy, and thanks to the records kept by the astronomers in 1006, modern astronomers knew exactly where to look to find its remnants in the sky. All that remains of this mysterious event 1,000 years ago is a ghostly ball of gas in the sky that spans about 60 light years across. Today, the supernova can only be observed using a telescope because it is 7,200 light years away a vast distance across our galaxy, and much farther than any pole star. Deneb, the most distant quasi-lodestar, is roughly three and a half times closer to Earth at about 2,000 light-years away. This means that when the light of the supernova finally reached the eyes of those observers in 1006, they were looking at light that had been traveling seven millennia, 
almost the same distance in time between the people alive to witness SN-1006 and the ancient Kiffians of the Green Sahara. Of course, these people didn't understand anything about supernovas at the time, leaving at least one observer to note that it was causing alarm. Like eclipses, many assumed that it was a bad omen, but others didn't know what to make of it at all, and often ignored it. But unlike eclipses, even astronomers had no indication or understanding of what it was that they were seeing, nor was there any method to predict such an unusual sky phenomenon. For us today, science has helped us gather some type of understanding of stars and supernovas, but back then, the reaction would have been more visceral. A sky that changes unpredictably shakes us to our core and causes us to ponder the meaning of existence. As rare as witnessing a supernova might initially seem, there were actually younger children who would have seen the 1006 event take place overhead only to observe another supernova 48 years later in 1054. That year, astronomers from China, Japan, Korea, and the Middle East documented another guest star. Other possible observations of the 1054 supernova also occurred in Europe and North America. Once again, the new supernova was so bright as to be seen during the day and cast shadows on the Earth at night. And once again, they hadn't the faintest idea of what they were observing. And just like the one a half-century before, it eventually disappeared from the sky and was subsequently forgotten. The remnants of the 1054 supernova were rediscovered again in 1731 by astronomer John Beavis and was eventually given the name the Crab Nebula. Much smaller than SN1006 at only about 10 light-years across, it is often considered one of the most beautiful and most widely studied nebula. When a star dies in a supernova like SN1006 or SN1054, all of the elements that it was fusing together in its core are ejected in a cloud of dust and gas that spreads across the empty space around it at very high speeds. All of the elements that are on Earth were forged in the death of ancient stars that exploded just like these. And the dust and clouds of the resulting nebulae, like the Crab Nebula, go on to become nurseries for new stars to form and ignite. It's very likely that the sun was born in one of these stellar nurseries, in the dust of some long-dead, fast-burning star laden with sodium, gold, and iron, but also the critical elements to life, like oxygen and carbon. 
At the center of the Crab Nebula are the remains of this exploded star from 1054, a dense ball of matter known as a neutron star. Once a star dies and ejects all of its elements into a colorful, light-year-spanning nebula, sometimes all that remains is a dense, spinning core, often no bigger than a small town, but heavier than the sun. In a sense, it is like a star gets a second life after it initially dies, but it also sort of looks like the second life someone lives when they become a vampire. They become shades of their former glory, rabid, dark, and deadly. These dense remains are called neutron stars, and the fastest can spin over a hundred times each second. In the case of the neutron star at the center of the Crab Nebula, it spins a respectable 30 times per second. Neutron stars are so dense and pressurized at their core that they are just about one step away from becoming black holes. If the star that created the 1054 supernova was only a little bigger, it would have ripped open the fabric of space-time itself, the signature feature of all black holes. The speed at which a neutron star spins, coupled with its density, pushes the boundaries of known physics. Scientists still really don't understand what is happening at the core of a neutron star. They can shoot radiation out from their poles so reliably that they pulse and it allows us to see the speed of their spin a precise atomic clock deep in our galaxy. The neutron star of the Crab Nebula therefore pulses 30 times in a second. Neutron stars that pump out radiation at a reliably consistent rate like this are called pulsars. But there is no way for the people of 1,000 years ago to have known all of this. All they could do was observe, witness, and record for future generations who would use their data to solve the deep mysteries of space. Countless astronomers have documented and died without knowing exactly how useful their observations would become later on. All of the greats depended on past astronomers who meticulously recorded their observations, never knowing how it would impact future discoveries. Thales depended on them. Hipparchus depended on them. Ptolemy depended on them. Caesar depended on them. And Lilius and the Catholic Church depended on them. Without these countless unnamed astronomers, we would not know nearly as much about the universe today. The astronomers from China who witnessed this guest star could not communicate with those from Egypt or Europe to discuss or share information on what they were observing in the sky. In isolation, each recorded what they saw and then 
went on to die. It would be centuries before people were able to come together and discuss how to solve the plaguing mysteries of the cosmos on a global scale. Chapter 5, Part 2, Chasing Venus It's difficult to determine exactly when humanity started to really work together to try and conquer our understanding of the heavens. However, a case can be made for the decade of the 1760s. Physical distance was always a well-understood problem, but by the 18th century, global shipping was reliably occurring even though it took months for a ship to go from Europe all the way to a place like the East Indies. Still, by the end of the 18th century, it was now possible for regular communication to occur with someone on the other side of the world, a luxury those in the 11th century did not have when they witnessed their two supernovas. But as the Earth began to shrink under the might of human ingenuity, Specific measurement of time and space became an increasingly critical issue. While the advent of precision pendulum clocks had allowed timing to be more precise than ever before, they could easily lose their precision when packed for traveling, especially overseas. In our modern mind, we can quickly imagine the problems of the only clock not keeping good time as it traveled across the ocean. Even worse, different places that were relatively close to each other kept time differently without any standardization between them. The measurement of time was not the only form of measurement that was a problem. The measurement of distance varied widely, even within Europe itself, as a mile was a different length depending on the location, as England to Germany to Austria all had different concepts of the mile. But perhaps the most frustrating problem of them all was finding a way to determine your current latitude and longitude on Earth. Determining latitude and longitude in the middle of the ocean could make the critical shipping industry profitably more efficient, and even more important, it could save lives if a ship was blown off course. The only problem was that determining latitude and longitude while out at sea was so difficult that it was considered a near impossibility to know. In the year 1760, these were the problems that needed to be overcome if humanity wanted to tackle answering one of the deepest secrets hidden by the sky above. 
how far the earth was from the sun. And in order to understand the secrets from above, it would require the conquering of the earth below. So in 1716, a 60-year-old Edmund Haley wrote a 10-page essay laying out a challenge to astronomers nearly half a century into the future, a time where he knew he would no longer be alive. As one of Europe's most legendary astronomers, Haley is most famous for predicting the return of his namesake comet. But it may have been this essay in 1716 that had far greater of an impact on the world of science. Haley laid out to the future astronomers of the 1760s that there would be exactly two opportunities in 1761 and 1769 at observing Venus as it passed between the sun and the earth, just as the moon does during a solar eclipse. But with Venus being so much more distant in the sky, the only way to truly observe it would be with a telescope that had a lens that had been smoked to not damage the eyes while watching the small black dot of Venus traverse across the sun. Haley knew he would not live to see this transit, but thought that he would plead with future astronomers to recognize the value of such a rare opportunity. Venus, the third brightest object in the sky after the sun and the moon, has always drawn attention of those who watch the sky. In the days of the ancient Babylonians, they thought it was two separate stars, as sometimes it appeared in the early morning, and at other times during the year it would appear in the early evening, often making it the last celestial body other than the moon visible as day breaks, and the first to appear as the sun sets. The Babylonians called it Ishtar, a goddess of beauty, something mimicked by both the Greeks, who called it Aphrodite, and the Romans, who called it Venus, just as we still do today. It was considered a part of a mysterious class of stars known as wandering stars, since they didn't follow the usual paths of all the other heavenly bodies. Planets like Venus, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter wreaked havoc on early models of the solar system as different mathematicians and astronomers struggled to explain their unusual and eccentric S-shaped paths as they traveled through the sky. But by the time Edmund Haley wrote his essay on Venus transiting the sun in 1716, the route of the planets were well understood. Part of Haley's astronomical accomplishments was observing the transit of Mercury across the sun in 1677. And because he had witnessed Mercury cross the face of the sun, he 
realized that there was a unique opportunity to actually use the Venus transits in the 1760s as a chance to determine the distance between the Sun and the Earth. Haley realized that the moon was too close to the Earth to use for this purpose, and that Mercury was too far. But if enough astronomers were able to view the transit of Venus and precisely record its time of passage, as well as very specific points within that passage, that they would be able to determine just exactly how many miles of space lay between the Earth and the Sun. If the astronomers of the 1760s missed out on this opportunity, then there wouldn't be another chance for over a century until the Venus transit happened again in 1874. A man who often seemed larger than life, Edmund Haley worried about future astronomers missing this opportunity even on his deathbed, drinking alcohol as he was like to do before passing from this world. Haley was another astronomer who needed to rely on future generations to discover what he could not, just as the astronomers of the 11th century hoped that their observations would help a future people who understood what they could not. What happened next is perhaps best documented in the book Chasing Venus, The Race to Measure by Andrea Wolfe, I Highly recommend reading this entire book because my summary here will not do it justice. In April of 1760, just over a year before the first transit was to occur, no meaningful plans to observe the transit were made. With less than 400 days until the transit, Haley's hope that Venus's transit would be observed was all but lost. But on April 30th, 1760, the official astronomer for the French Navy, the 72-year-old Joseph Nicolas Delisle, walked into the most powerful scientific institution in Europe, the French Academy of the Sciences in Paris, ready to take up Edmund Halley's call. Delisle came prepared as he proposed the unprecedented idea of a global scientific effort to track the transit of Venus the following year on June 6, 1761. Delisle knew there was precious little time, and he also knew that he was one of the only people in the world with enough clout to pull off any meaningful observation. Delisle came prepared with a map mond, a map of the world which included lines across the planet to easily show the best locations to view the transit. The French Academy wholeheartedly endorsed the expedition, despite such a short time to prepare. But Delisle's proposal was bold. He knew that the only way this was going to be done with enough accuracy 
was to involve as many other countries that were willing to participate. A scientific endeavor unlike any that had been attempted before in history. What made his proposal even more audacious was that Europe was embroiled in the middle of possibly the worst war in history up to that point, the Seven Years' War, often considered the true First World War. Two of the primary combatants in this war were France and Great Britain, and yet Delisle wrote a letter to the British equivalent of the French Academy, the British Royal Society, and provided them with a copy of his world map, asking them to participate in the observation. Rather than snub their enemy, the Royal Society were excited at the prospect and quickly obtained funds to join the race. Edmund Haley, the very man who called astronomers to action, was British himself. So how would it look if Great Britain didn't stand up to his call while their nemesis did? But the British were not the only ones to answer Delisle's call. Ultimately, 14 total European countries and at least 130 astronomers agreed to partake in the global effort to track the transit of Venus. Despite the war, there was a belief that scientific knowledge was for the betterment of all humanity an ideal that stood above petty wars in the same spirit as the story of Thales and the Olive Press. The French Academy and the Royal Society both acquired royal pardons for some of those astronomers that traveled to observe the transit of 1761 so that they would be protected by both nations. Despite both nations' generosity, any astronomer that traveled the oceans for this observation would still be putting their lives at risk. During wartime, thousands of miles away from home after having your ship sunk, royal pardons would be nothing more than worthless wet paper. But at least they were given something. Now that both France and Great Britain agreed to participate in observing the transit, it became another competition between them, as it was with everything else during the war. At the time, it was France that was considered the stronger of the two countries, but Great Britain was steadily growing in strength and was competing to surpass France. Like an 18th century space race, the competition on which country could send their men the furthest to obtain the most important measurements of the transit was on. As it happened, the best place to view the 1761 transit would occur over in the East Indies on the other side of the world. There were other prime viewing locations, but they were no easier to gain access to, such as Russian Siberia or Finnish Lapland. By collecting the observation of when Venus touched the outside edge and the 
inside edge of the sun on its entrance, as well as the same two edges upon its exit, they could determine the distance of the sun from Earth only if they had data from different points of the entire transit from all around the world. One single accurate observation would not be enough to determine the distance between the sun and the earth. It would take many precise eyes pointed directly at the sun from all over the planet. The measurements created by each would create a parallax effect. Just like how your thumb can block an object in front of you when one eye is closed, but when you switch which eye is open, the object is now visible. This is the essence of the parallax effect. The different perspectives from parallax observations allows us to measure distance. Our depth perception comes from the fact that our eyes are separated from each other, and when they both look at an object at the same time, they're able to gauge the distance with some accuracy. So likewise, with observations from different points on different sides of the Earth, there would be enough data that a precise distance between the Earth and the Sun could be determined. The country that came back with the most precious data from the most difficult place to reach would gain global scientific prestige. France was the first to find a volunteer for Delisle's plan with the astronomer Guillaume Le Gentil. Le Gentil was so enthusiastic to participate that he left for India before Delisle even proposed the plan to the French Academy. As Delisle made his proposal, he already knew France had a two-month head start on being the country with the most important observation, as Le Gentil was well on his way east. Le Gentil was not only an astronomer, but also a cartographer, and seriously understood the value of such observations. On several occasions on his way to India, his ship was almost attacked and was racked by storms. Delayed on several occasions, he doggedly worked his way to his destination in the Orient, he seemed almost fated to view the transit as he overcame each obstacle and pushed on. With Le Gentil being one of France's best astronomers, nothing was going to stop him from capturing this rare transit in such a crucial location. France also had another volunteer in the young Jean-Baptiste Chap d'Araroche. A brilliant mathematician and aristocrat with a taste for adventure. He offered to travel 4,000 miles at the invitation of the Russian government to observe the transit in Siberia. Chap's success, if he were to make it, would be another crucial data point in determining the distance between the Sun and the Earth chalking up another win for France after Le Gentil.
At first, Chap's adventure to Russia seemed quaint as he wended his way across Europe and even returned a runaway girl to her parents. But as Chap entered Russia and winter descended on the vast northern kingdom, things became more dangerous. On his way to St. Petersburg, his carriage had gotten in an accident where his precious instruments were nearly destroyed and almost ended his mission right there. The roads to St. Petersburg were bad, but once he reached the capital, Chap had to switch to travel by sledge across the Siberian wilderness. He needed to reach the outpost town of Tobolsk still nearly 2,000 miles away, before spring, when the rivers became impassable. Andrea Wolfe relays that Chap was still traveling the following spring, even as the rivers began to become dangerous to cross. But heroically, or recklessly, Chap pushed on to reach Tobolsk, despite the risk. With one melting river remaining, even his guides refused to cross it. But for Chap, it was the difference between glory and obscurity, and he would not give up now. Chap, according to Wolf, cajoled, threatened, bantered, and bullied until his guides agreed to cross the river with the help of copious amounts of brandy. And to their good fortune, They all made it across safely. But now in Tobolsk, Chap was seen as a mysterious foreigner who suspiciously arrived just as the rivers began flooding and damaging property around the city. As Chap quickly built his observatory and set up his unusual instruments, Wolf says that the locals became convinced that he was a magician. As he was a guest of the emperor, the governor appointed guards to protect him from the potential violence from the locals. Chap became so concerned that the night before the transit, He slept in his observatory so that the locals didn't destroy it. In response to France's Indian and Siberian missions, Great Britain also sent some notable astronomers to distant locations. Neville Maskelyne had witnessed a solar eclipse as a child, and it drew him to study the sky. Maskelyne was also the brother-in-law of Robert Clive, the man most credited with winning India for the East India Company. The East India Company was a global trading company, whom the Royal Society needed help from to get them to their observation locations around the globe. Maskelyne's family connection to Clive easily secured him a position on a ship to St. Helena, one of the most remote islands on the planet, located right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It was the same location that Edmund Haley used to observe the transit of Mercury all those many decades ago. 
Masculine was not only going to provide an important observation from a remote location for the transit, but he also decided to solve the elusive problem of finding the longitude, something that could only be derived with an unprecedented knowledge of the cosmos. Knowing the latitude and longitude of a location was a critical component for accurate measurements of Venus, but the knowledge was even more critical for the ever-growing merchant ships traversing the global seas. There was a large financial reward called the Longitude Prize that awarded a substantial amount of money to whoever worked out a simple and reliable way to determine longitude, regardless of their position on the planet. Masculine was using a new method that required complex mathematical equations that paid attention to what stars the moon passed in front of at certain times. If the moon passes a certain set of stars sooner or later than a clock set to Greenwich time, the location of the Royal Observatory, then this would help determine how many degrees east or west they were from that location, which would determine the longitude. And as Masculine reached St. Helena, he found that his method proved even more accurate than the one used by the sailors who got him there. Determining the precise location for ships at sea through a variety of astronomical phenomena particularly using this specific lunar method of longitude that he used on his way to St. Helena, would continue to remain a focus of his throughout his career. But Maskelyne's journey was not to be Great Britain's furthest destination. The Royal Society decided to send a pair of astronomers all the way to the Indonesian islands in the Pacific. If Great Britain could get an observation from Indonesia, it could even be greater than that of Les Gentiles in India. Great Britain decided to send two astronomers in case one of them died during this long and dangerous journey that crossed thousands of miles of ocean during wartime. The duo chosen by the society were the young Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon, who both had experience in astronomy. The British military was even willing to lend the Royal Society a ship for Mason and Dixon to travel to the East Indies. After Mason and Dixon boarded the ship, they barely made it out to sea, before it was attacked and boarded by the French, where a bloody fight ensued. The duo were nearly killed, but the British soldiers on the ship were able to repel the attack, and the French sailed away. 
as far as Mason and Dixon were concerned, as they looked upon the strewn bodies of the injured and dead, the mission was over. They were already late to begin with, and had barely begun before this delay. It seemed now impossible to reach Indonesia on the other side of the world when they could hardly make it out of sight of Great Britain. And perhaps they had a greater sense of their mortality after such a close brush with death. They were okay with missing such a momentous occasion. But when the Royal Society heard about Mason and Dixon's plan to quit, they threatened the pair with mutiny if they did not go to the East Indies anyway, late or not. The firm response by the Society suddenly compelled the pair to agree to go, even though they knew there was no real way that they would reach the Indies in time. It really did seem like everyone might have known by any measure that it was too late to reach the East Indies, but the idea of losing the most important observation on the transit without even trying was unthinkable to the Royal Society, so they compelled them to go anyway. Mason and Dixon followed orders until they reached the tip of South Africa, and as the date of the transit, June 6, loomed ever closer, they decided it would be best to remain in South Africa and observe a partial eclipse than it would to be stuck in the middle of the Indian Ocean and miss the entire thing. This time, when they wrote the Royal Society about their new observation location, they stated that it was the captain's decision, and not their own. Lay Gentil, Chap, Masculine, Mason, and Dixon were just five of the dozens who traveled to different locations around the world to get a unique observation of the transit of Venus. Sweden was one of the most important contributors to the observation since they had the Arctic in their own backyard. Each traveler had to carry sensitive equipment on rough seas, rough roads, and, in some cases, even through wilderness. They carried clocks and lenses carefully packed. Most had to build a sort of makeshift observatory where they had to keep their clocks by measuring the sun as it climbed through the sky. Those in the most distant locations knew they had to be set up before May 18, 1761, so they could use the lunar eclipse to determine their longitude one of the only known ways to do so before Masculine's moon chart. Le Gentil not only missed the lunar eclipse, he was in the middle of the ocean on the night before the transit, and he knew that landing in India was hopeless. Le Gentil had made it to Pondicherry, only to find it had been taken over by the British during the war. British officials denied the French vessel entry to the port, forcing them to turn back to where they came from. 
Le Gentil's early effort to reach India was all for naught. On the morning of June 6, 1761, everyone prayed for clear skies. Le Gentil, afloat on his ship in the middle of the Indian Ocean, was able to observe the transit, but couldn't collect any meaningful data. While Chap, Masculine, Mason, and Dixon all struggled mightily against the clouds, each were able to take essential observations of the transit, and each returned home safely. Masculine, Mason, and Dixon even worked together for a while before all returning to Great Britain from their observation. The only one who would not return home after the 1761 transit was Le Gentil. He may have missed contributing to the 1761 transit, but he was determined to stay around the Indian Ocean for the next eight years until the 1769 transit. This way, he would definitely be ready for it then. As the data poured in from around the world, each scientific society in each country published their observations so that other nations could see them. This way, everyone had access to the same information, regardless of nationality. So any scientist could help calculate the distance between the Earth and the Sun. In a way, this is what makes the 18th century transit of Venus the first collaborative, international, scientific effort. If each nation were to have jealously safeguarded their data from others, none of the nations would have a complete set. But if everyone shared their data, then everyone would have access to the knowledge and information, making all societies around the world more informed. But it became quickly apparent that there was a problem with the precision of observations that almost everyone who witnessed the transit noticed. And it wasn't just insufficient data due to missed opportunities like in the cases of Le Gentil being stuck in the Indian Ocean or others who suffered a cloudy day. There was an optical illusion that was happening, similar to when waves of heat radiate off a paved road, where it's difficult to determine where the road ends and the atmosphere above it begins. The atmospheres of both Earth and Venus created this optical illusion known as the black drop effect, where it was difficult to discern the precise moments that needed to be recorded between the different points of Venus's entry and exit on the edge of the sun. I have a picture of what this black drop effect looks like in the book. In some cases, the discrepancies between two observers in the same location was up to 10 seconds, 
creating a much wider margin of error than the precise observations were supposed to bring. The data collected during the 1761 transit was not useless, but it was far less accurate than any of them had hoped for, largely due to this black drop effect. But they had one more chance, and astronomers from around the world were determined to learn from their mistakes and take another shot during the upcoming 1769 transit. In the intervening years between the transits, Delisle essentially went into retirement. Chap wrote a book about his adventures to Siberia. Maskelyne was recognized for his work on determining longitude and was ultimately promoted to Astronomer Royal. And Mason and Dixon traveled to the American colonies to settle a border dispute between Pennsylvania and Maryland. Setting out with some of the most premier surveying instruments of their day given to them by Maskelyne, Mason and Dixon used the stars directly above to survey a straight line for 230 miles. It was the most accurate survey done in America up until that time, and their accuracy still impresses experts today, and why their line has stood the test of time. However, the famous Mason-Dixon line is not entirely perfect. Subtle variations in the gravity of the mountains of the American wilderness drew them slightly off their nearly perfect straight line. It was one of the first borders to be determined using accurate latitude and longitude. The border between the United States and Canada would ultimately be drawn in a similar way. Le Gentil continued to be productive during the inter-transit period, too, making more precise maps for the French Academy and ultimately learning a lot about Tamil astronomy in India, particularly how they computed eclipses. With the Seven Years' War at an end, Le Gentil was able to land in India for the second transit and wanted to follow through with the rumor that he heard of the precision of Indian astronomers who could accurately predict eclipses. Le Gentil learned that this was highly coveted knowledge held only by the highest caste in India, the priestly Brahmins, and even amongst that exclusive group, not all knew the methods. Only by befriending a local who knew a man related to the royal family was Le Gentil able to learn this secret knowledge. Le Gentil was impressed with both the methods and accuracy in their predictions of eclipses and found that they closely matched his own calculations. Le Gentil described the process in his memoirs, quote, 
He sat on the floor, and by handling these cowries with a singular speed, and consulting his little booklet from time to time, he gave me all the phases of the eclipse in less than three quarters of an hour. I compared this calculation with that of the ephemerides, and I noticed enough conformity to make me admire the method of this man. Having given him other eclipses to calculate, he did not take more time for them than he had done for the first one. End quote. Le Gentil was able to learn and master the technique from this man and documented it, making it one of the only known records of ancient Indian astronomy. The method was not only secret because it was held within the Brahmin class, but also because when they made their calculations, they never wrote anything down. Le Gentil marveled at how completely unique it was from westernized methods. Quote, Their rules of astronomical calculations are in enigmatic verses, which they know by heart. By this means, they do not need tables of data. By means of those verses which we see them recite as they calculate, as we do our formulas, and by means of their cowries, they make these calculations of the eclipses of the sun and the moon with the greatest quickness. They perform their calculations with a singular speed and ease, without pen or pencil. They replace writing with cowries, a sort of shell, which they place on a table like our tokens, and most often on the ground. This method of calculating seems to me to have its advantages, in that it is much more prompt and more expeditious than ours. But, at the same time, it has a very great inconvenience. There is no way of going back on the calculations, much less of keeping them, since we erase as we advance. If we have, unfortunately, made a mistake, we must start again from the beginning. But it is very rare that they are mistaken. They work with a singular coolness, a calmness and tranquility of which we are incapable, which enables them to avoid the mistakes which we Europeans would not fail to make in their place. It therefore appears that we must, among other things, keep each one to our method. It seems that theirs was made only for them. End quote. Le Gentil brought valuable ancient and foreign knowledge to the French Academy, which helped inform Western understanding of Asian astronomy. During this time between transits, Le Gentil got a hold of a new European book on the history of mathematics, which purported as fact the hypothesis put forth by Edmund Haley about how the Babylonian Saros was used to predict eclipses by the ancient Mesopotamians. As Otto Neugebauer notes in his Exact Sciences in Antiquity, Le Gentil strongly challenged Halley's theory on the Saros's association with eclipses that in the next edition of this history book, the author used a more cautious formulation. 
This new addition, though, according to Neugebauer, was too late to have any effect, and therefore the Babylonian Cyrus' relationship to eclipses has continued to stick, despite strong evidence against this. And this was first pushed back on by Le Gentil. It was Halley's reasoning on the Saros that led to theories about Thales using it to predict his eclipse to begin with. Even today, Halley's theory that the Babylonian Saros is associated with eclipses is still considered true despite Le Gentil and Neugebauer providing compelling reasons that Haley may well have been wrong. The implications of this is possibly that neither the Babylonians nor Thales had any way to predict any eclipses, which is what leads Neugebauer to believe that Thales didn't predict the eclipse at all. At the same time, Rituals like the substitute king seem to indicate that at least sometimes they did know when eclipses were coming. And if that were the case, it's also possible that Thales had access to whatever methods there was, even if those methods weren't perfect or did not survive into the modern day. If Legentil and Neugebauer are right, and Halley's theory on the Babylonian Saros being related to eclipses is wrong, that clearly has not fully permeated the greater academic community yet, as many articles today still use Halley's theory on the Saros as the reason why the Babylonians could predict eclipses. It was Legentil's keen eye that first provided the scrutiny to Halley's theory that called for a more accurate discussion. Although it may be that Halley's popularity alone advanced his theory over that of the more tragic and forgotten figure of Legentil, that the Babylonian Saros is still considered true. Le Gentil's discovery of this previously unknown Indian method added even more to the discussion. Le Gentil was able to determine that this unique Indian method used to determine eclipses had been used for millennia, at least as early as 78 CE. While this was almost 600 years after Thales, it was entirely unique from any westernized method, as the description provided by Le Gentil demonstrates. Le Gentil marveled that some of the Brahmins of India were able to maintain this knowledge for at least 1,700 years without changing and even pointed out that this practice was being used when most of Europe still had no way of determining eclipses. Le Gentil also noticed that there was resistance within the Brahmin class to improve their methods, despite new knowledge, and while he found that to be to their detriment, it could also be argued that it was this very inflexibility of the Brahmins, which preserved the method into the 18th century. 
The question then becomes whether the Babylonians had access to this Eastern method during antiquity. Neugebauer weighs in that there just isn't enough knowledge to know whether the Babylonians had direct access to this Indian method, but he gives several compelling reasons that they didn't. He notes that terminology and planetary models used by Indians were of Greek origin, clearly demonstrating Greek influence on Indian astronomy that could date back to the cultural diffusion that occurred between the Greeks and Indians as early as Alexander the Great in the 4th century BCE. Neugebauer also notes that the very location that Le Gentil learned his methods in Pondicherry was a center for Roman trade, indicating further Greco-Roman cultural diffusion with India. But Le Gentil was as knowledgeable about the origins of Western eclipse measurements as Neugebauer, and he did not describe witnessing or learning a method that had correlations to Greek astronomy. Le Gentil clearly stated that their method seemed that it was, quote, made only for them, indicating a method that may predate the clear Greco-Roman influence on Indian astronomy. If this method was able to be taken to Babylon or even Ionia, it's possible that Thales was able to learn of a method that had origins much further east than originally thought. However, as Neugebauer says, there is no way to know for certain where or how the Indian method originated and who was influenced by it. All that we can say for certain is that during the years between the transits, Le Gentil was not idle. So, with the Seven Years' War over, and Great Britain now the unequivocal new global power, it was masculine, now as Astronomer Royal, that led the international charge of observing the 1769 transit of Venus. Mason and Dixon, recently returned home from their American survey, agreed to observe the 1769 transit as well, although this time they didn't do it together. Masculine also knew this transit needed to be bigger and better than the 1761 transit to demonstrate Britain's new role as the leading global power. Therefore, Masculine sent a group to the frigid Hudson Bay, where they would winter there in the harsh conditions so to be ready for the June 1769 transit. But Maskelyne's most daring mission was a scientific expedition to the southern Pacific Ocean, a place still nearly entirely unexplored by Europe. The new calculations showed that the best place to view the 1769 transit would be from what we now know to be the middle of the Pacific Ocean, where nearly no land exists. But at the time, the belief that land was out there was still thought to be possible. 
both France and Great Britain were in competition for a Southern Pacific observation without even having a known place to land, and without further intel, they could very likely be in the same position of Le Gentile during the 1761 transit, stuck in the middle of the ocean with no way to accurately record the transit. Spain, the European nation who claimed the most easterly islands in the Pacific, was not going to let either the British or the French into their territories. So Britain decided to take a gamble on a small island called Tahiti that a recent voyage had just returned from, this time with every intent of making it there on time so that they would not repeat the missed opportunity of Mason and Dixon. This would become Britain's most expensive mission to observe the transit, and it required personal financial approval from the king, thus making it the first scientific mission of its kind. Leading the South Sea expedition was none other than Captain James Cook, whose primary objective was to get Maskelyne's former assistant astronomer, Charles Green, to Tahiti to record the second transit of Venus. Today, James Cook is one of the most famous people that we learn about when discussing history and exploration. But almost never is it talked about that the focus of his mission, the primary objective, was to observe this transit of Venus. This was something that I only was able to really learn about through Andrea Wolfe's book. The Royal Society put together all of their equipment for them, including a prefabricated observatory, I share a picture of what that looks like in my book, and began to see the potential in such an extensive scientific endeavor. The ship, named Endeavor, could collect all kinds of scientific data in the areas of biology, climatology, geology, and geography, as well as any astronomical observations that they would make. They would continue to explore the South Pacific Oceans after the observation and delegated Cook to bring a young Joseph Banks along for a journey as well a wealthy landowner and naturalist that would be in charge of documenting and collecting flora and fauna from around the globe. Competing with Captain Cook to the South Pacific in France was none other than Jean-Baptiste Chapt d'Arroche, who once again wanted the recognition for taking his observations in one of the most remote regions on Earth. The French, who were on friendlier terms with the Spanish than the English were, attempted to work with Spain for access to these far-flung regions in the southern Pacific, but Spain still denied all access. With time ticking and Spanish bureaucracy getting in the way, Chaps settled for sailing to California by crossing Mexico with a small entourage and Spanish soldiers, who were less like guides and more like guards, keeping a close eye on him. 
Chap would also come under fire for his book about his 1761 trip to Siberia by the new Empress of Russia, Catherine the Great. Catherine was sensitive to the fact that her country needed to invite foreign astronomers to their country in order to observe the transit, because very few Russians were trained in the science of astronomy. Chap's recently published book, Voyage in Siberia, was well-received in France, but painted Catherine's realm in the light of a backwards, almost medieval country, a common European view of Russia at the time. Russia would maintain this image even into the 20th century, and the government's lack of modernization efforts and poor treatment of peasants partly led to the 1917 revolution. Catherine would publish her own book to directly combat Chap's account, entitled Antidote where she calls out Chap's unusual focus on women in his writing as well as openly doubting his scientific methods. However, Chap would have no time to learn of the reception of his book because he had to rush off to California in order to capture the 1769 transit. Catherine the Great had already been making preparations for Russia to be a leader for the 1769 transit, but with the publication of Chap's book, Catherine knew Russia's reputation was on the line in enlightened Europe. She continually created more and larger missions for the 18th century's final Venusian transit. The 1769 transit was her chance to show Europe that Russia, too, was a nation of liberal, scientific thinking, and that it could compete with the likes of Great Britain and France. She ordered some of the highest quality equipment that was only made in England so that Russian teams would have the finest instruments in the world to view the transit. Catherine also called for additional scientific objectives, which included the work of geologists and naturalists. The size and scope of the 1769 transit missions grew so large that she still needed to call in the help of foreign astronomers to ensure all of the locations across her country had the appropriate number of scientific professionals. It's even likely that Catherine the Great motivated Great Britain to take on the Captain Cook's Southern Pacific voyage so that they would not be outdone by the Empress's scientific expeditions. Despite the international competition on who would collect the most scientifically valuable data, there was also going to be collaboration amongst the competitors just as they had done after the first transit of Venus. Science had a way of transcending the nationalism of the time, even during war, as the first transit had shown. There was some 
unspoken agreement by everybody that even across battling borders, that advancement of our knowledge in our place in the universe was more important than any petty national interests. Many of these men risked their lives and traveled for months in dangerous conditions just to take an observation that may just end up getting lost by a cloudy day. Captain Cook had already lost men in South America on a plant-collecting mission on his way to Tahiti when a sudden snowstorm hit. And despite guarding the newly constructed observatory when they reached Tahiti, a critical instrument, a quadrant, had suddenly disappeared, jeopardizing the entire mission. The quadrant was found after a frantic search of the island by Joseph Banks, who discovered that it had been taken by one of the natives. Despite the Tahitian having taken it apart, likely out of curiosity, they were able to get it returned and put it back together, thus saving the entire mission. Chap, for his part, was continually delayed by the Spanish, at first by getting bureaucratic approval, and then again by his Spanish overseers who slowed him down the entire way. Having sailed over the Atlantic and then crossing Mexico to the Pacific, he finally sailed north to California, where he was increasingly realizing that he was running out of time. A repeat of his trip across the frozen rivers to Tobolsk earlier that decade. With only about Two weeks left until the second transit when everyone else around the world was already in place and waiting for the big day, Chap was still on a ship off of the coast of California, nowhere close to his viewing site. But he was still close enough. Chap knew that the only way that he was going to capture the second transit of Venus was the same way that he captured the first. He raged at the captain and his Spanish overseers to find a place to anchor as soon as possible and head to shore. The coastline was not ideal for landing and could easily smash or soak his vital instruments that he desperately needed for the transit. Chap chastised them as not being man enough to anchor in the choppy waters of a dangerous harbor. Chap's berating succeeded a second time as the crew relented and agreed to take Chap ashore despite their better judgment. The waters were so rough that it seemed the ship would be tossed into the rocks and for a short while, Chap was being blamed for their collective doom. They needed to row the remainder of the way as the water sprayed everybody and everything. If Chap's pendulum clock got wet, he knew that everything would have been for nothing. So he wrapped it up, put it in a rowboat, and sat on top of it while the sailors mightily rowed them all to safety. Despite this poorly executed impromptu landing, Chap found 
all of his instruments in working order. So he would still have both the time and ability to catch the transit. He decided to capture the second transit of Venus in the nearby mission of San Jose del Cabo. But as the beleaguered travelers made their way into the mission, they were greeted with one of the worst typhus epidemics the mission had ever seen. Even so, Chap was going to stay and watch the transit. He did not have any more time to lose, and getting the observation was worth risking his own life, as he had already proven by crossing melting rivers, avoiding attacks by local Russians, and going ashore in this dangerous and remote disease-infested land. As the morning of the transit arrived on June 3, 1769, the world was ready. With at least 10 participant countries and 126 astronomers, it was an event that had captured the attention of both the laymen and royalty alike. Despite slightly fewer participating nations and astronomers than the 1761 transit due to its difficult location to be seen, these expeditions were overall more professional, better funded, and more prepared than the 1761 transit. In places like London, crowds gathered at local instrument makers who projected the transit onto the wall for people to observe. Others gathered around anyone who had a telescope. One Dutch priest in Jakarta built a lavish 80-foot-high observatory to observe the transit. In Great Britain, King George watched Venus enter the sun just before sunset at his new royal observatory in Richmond before it disappeared in mid-transit behind the horizon. In St. Petersburg, only the exit would be visible for Catherine the Great as she stayed up all night playing cards with her favorite courtiers and German astronomer until 3 a.m because she wanted to ensure that she wouldn't miss it. The fact that Europe only provided glimpses of either Venus's entrance or exit of the sun made the observations of far-flung astronomers around the world that much more important. Le Gentil was ready this time, having been away from France for nearly a decade and having been rerouted by the French Academy back to India from his initial choice of viewing in the Philippines. The place he had chosen in the Philippines ended up having a clear viewing that day, where two amateurs Le Gentil had taught were able to clearly observe the transit. But France recalled Le Gentil to Pondicherry, where he would view the transit in the rubble of the war-torn city and learn ancient eclipse knowledge from the native Indians. Le Gentil reached India with plenty of time to spare, although he once again nearly lost his life on the passage over in a great storm that even the crew thought that they would be lost in. I think 
it was this storm that he even had to take control of the boat because the crew literally abandoned it just for the amount of tragedies that Lei Gentil had to overcome to try and view the second transit of Venus are enough to read the book Chasing Venus by Andrea Wolfe. It is just amazing what he went through in order to be able to see these transits. Anyway, with no war to keep him out of the subcontinent and cloudless skies every day, he felt confident that his viewing conditions were ideal. Then, on the morning of June 3rd, the day of the transit, Le Gentil awoke to clouds everywhere, leaving him to, once again, miss the only other chance he had at observing Venus's transit. Having dedicated the entire decade to track at least one of the two transits and failing at both, Le Gentil actually fell into a sort of depression. Even worse, his heirs were spreading rumors of his death since he had been gone from Europe for so long and they won ownership over his assets. It would ultimately take Le Gentil years to get home, once again nearly dying in one of the countless violent storms he endured overseas in the name of science. Le Gentil eventually arrived back in Europe after his decade-long absence of chasing Venus, only to find his assets divided amongst his heirs and the French Academy having stopped his paychecks because they too believed him to be dead. As Le Gentil sacrificed his life for science, he returned home to a nation that had essentially forgotten him. But at least Le Gentil had the chance to return home, even if he had to recollect his belongings. Chap had the good fortune to capture the second transit of Venus, unlike Le Gentil, and once again provided some of the best observations of the transit, just as he did in 1761. But where Le Gentil was able to keep his life despite missing the transits, Chap would capture both transits at the expense of his life. Typhus ravaged the little mission of San Jose del Cabo, striking down members of both Chap's as well as Spain's own transit observation team. Despite Chap having already captured the transit, he still needed to establish his longitude, since he didn't have enough time to measure it before the transit. Just over a week after the transit, when nearly everyone else in the mission lay ill or dying, Chap awoke with a high fever. He had been both assisting the ill by day and making critical observations of the sky by night, even as his condition worsened. He knew very well that he might not make it, but needed to live long enough for the June 18th lunar eclipse, which would finally solidify his longitudinal position and provide the collective global scientific community with the most accurate measurements possible. In his sickly state, Chap was able to observe the lunar eclipse and died just over a month later. 
leaving his completed calculations to his team's engineer and painter, the only two surviving members who would shepherd it back home to France. There's even a painting that's been done called The Death of Jean Chap, where everybody is around him at the mission, tending to him as he lay there dying and sick with a telescope off in the background, which I share in my book. After the June 3rd transit, Captain Cook continued his scientific expedition around New Zealand, Australia, and Indonesia. They endured their ship getting damaged by the Great Barrier Reef, as well as an epidemic of malaria in Jakarta. But not everyone survived. Charles Green, the main astronomer and Maskelyne's old assistant, never quite recovered from his bout of malaria in Jakarta and died at sea in a fit of madness. Up until that point, Green reliably guided the endeavor using Maskelyne's longitudinal methods of navigating the skies. Green and Chap were two of four astronomers who died in an attempt to capture the 1769 transit of Venus, proving how dangerous the feat truly was. Captain Cook and Joseph Banks arrived home as national heroes in July of 1771, over two years after the transit had occurred, and with some eager members of the Royal Society waiting for some critical data. Banks solidified his own career with this journey, bringing home 30,000 dried plants, where nearly 1,400 were totally new species to the British. He pushed Great Britain to colonize Australia, and within a decade, he would be the president of the Royal Society, a title he would hold for the following four decades. The scientific expeditions like the ones led by the Russian and British governments during the 1769 transit of Venus now became more common for nations to do, bringing a boon to the global scientific community. Andrea Wolfe, the author of Chasing Venus, mentions how these expeditions inspired the Lewis and Clark expedition in America. Charles Darwin's Beagle Expedition, where Darwin had a very similar role to Joseph Banks, and even Napoleon's scientific expedition in Egypt, each hearkening back to the successes of the 1769 Transit of Venus expeditions. How can we measure what might have never have been discovered if missions like these never occurred? If Cook's 1769 voyage never launched, it's possible other nations never would have prioritized scientific endeavors or understood what is now known to be the incalculable value that they wrought. Another indirect consequence of Edmund Haley's call to action was that ever after scientific information continued to be shared between nations. Keeping scientific discoveries and knowledge private is how the information dies out. 
justice was discovered by Lei Gentil when he learned of the ancient Indian method of calculating eclipses. The Brahmins weren't willing to share outside of their caste system, and ultimately the only way the method survived to the modern day was by an outsider learning it through an unorthodox way. The 18th century effort to observe Venus was proof that sharing scientific data provided collectively beneficial results. Those who created and disseminated scientific knowledge internationally became part of what was known as the Republic of Letters, where scholars and scientists shared new knowledge with one another, regardless of nationality. Joseph Banks put it succinctly, stating, The science of two nations may be at peace while their politics are at war. One Prussian inspired by Joseph Banks and the entire Enlightenment culture of the time was Alexander von Humboldt, who was born the same year as the Second Transit of Venus in 1769 and the subject of another one of Andrea Wolff's great books. Humboldt was driven by science and seemed possessed with the thought of doing a scientific mission like that of Joseph Banks, and as a German, he was able to attain in 1799 what neither France nor Britain could attain 30 years earlier, a chance to explore the Spanish colonies of America. Even more, Humboldt was basically granted by the Spanish crown a completely independent expedition with almost no restrictions, something Chap couldn't even attain for the 1769 transit. Humboldt's scientific discoveries would go on to eclipse even that of Joseph Banks and was Darwin's primary inspiration for his own trip. Humboldt played a direct role in getting Heinrich Barth to explore the Sahara and who then came upon the art of the ancient humid Saharans. The only way these scientific endeavors ever became a trend was the value collective Western society put on knowledge, reason, and education during the Enlightenment. It would have only taken a king who didn't value scientific knowledge to lose the funding for a scientific adventure like Cook's, and the history of the world might be wildly less informed. As Humboldt returned from his venture in the Spanish-American colonies, he paid a visit to President Thomas Jefferson, another well-known member of the Republic of Letters, at the newly built White House. While Humboldt fervently disagreed with slavery, he felt that the United States was at least exercising independence from Britain and was attempting democratic rule. Ideals aligned with the Enlightenment principles Humboldt espoused for his entire life. Humboldt bemoaned the insular and clandestine Spanish form of governance over the colonies, which he found had no love for Spain. After some prodding by Thomas Jefferson and other American intellectuals, Humboldt freely passed along previously unknown, 
critical information on the Spanish colonies that gave the United States a competitive edge against the outmoded empire. His notes and maps gave entire insights into the Spanish colonies that were not even known by the most elite European nations. Humboldt became a household name in the United States after his visit and was admired for decades. And once Humboldt returned to Europe, he described the beauty that he saw in South America in such vivid terms he captured the imagination of a Latin American who was visiting Europe at the time. Simon Bolivar was directly inspired to start a revolution in South America due to Humboldt's descriptions of his homeland. It's clear, then, that open science also began playing a political role as well. As Spain's empire crumbled from Bolivar's revolution and the United States deftly moved in as the regional power, suddenly Spain had a reason to distrust scientific openness. When Humboldt wanted to go on his next big mission through Siberia, Russia held him off for decades, remaining cautious of what happened to Spain and never forgetting about the light Chap painted the nation in when invited to travel through their country for the 1761 transit of Venus. Ultimately, even Russia allowed Humboldt to travel through Siberia, but made sure he was closely guided and tended to by Russian officials, so he wouldn't cause any trouble. The cautious approach that Spain took when taking Chap to California. But the implications of the freedom of scientific knowledge was clear. Scientific understanding could strengthen or undermine a nation's dominance, a cold fact that would be remembered in future collaborative scientific endeavors. And as for the results of the 1769 transit, the data collected was even better than the 1761 transit since the observers were ready and more consistent with their observations. Even after the 1761 observation, there was still a margin of error between the Earth and the Sun that was about 20 million miles, which was better than before, but still a very wide margin. After the 1769 transit of Venus, they were able to determine the distance between the Earth and the Sun to a margin of error within 4 million miles. And Within that 4 million mile margin of error, different calculations yielded different results depending on how they corrected for issues such as the black drop effect. Within that margin of error, the closest person to calculate the actual distance between the Earth and the Sun was mathematician and astronomer Thomas Hornsby who, incidentally, was essential in getting the Royal Society motivated to observe the 1769 transit to begin with. Hornsby determined the distance from the Earth to the Sun to be 93,726,900 miles, 
only about 800,000 miles off from what we now know to be the exact distance, 92,960,000 miles. The astronomers of the 1760s had succeeded in fulfilling Edmund Halley's challenge to them in a spectacular origin of global scientific collaboration. Listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast, as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.